Good morning, Sylvania. You can leave your Bibles open to that passage in Luke 2. We're going to be focusing on the text that was just read. And I would suggest to you that Christmas changes everything. Christmas changes everything. But it's also so familiar. On the one hand, it's revolutionary. It truly is revolutionary, and yet Christmas is nothing new for us. Every 12 months, the most wonderful time of the year rolls around with feasting and presents and traditions and candles and carols. Generosity soars. Kindness is in the air. You can feel it. As Scrooge's nephew so eloquently put it in A Christmas Carol, I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around as a good time. A kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they were really fellow travelers to the grave and not another race of, care, of creatures beyond on other journeys. See, we're, we're born and raised to be so familiar with Christmas that for many of us, it's coming each year is like a warm blanket wrapped around our soul. Some of you have been listening to Christmas music since September, and I just found out yesterday that Troy broadcast it all year long. <laughs> Joy makes sense. But that's not the case for everybody. Right? That's not the case for everybody. For some, Christmas bears with it difficult memories and pain of heaviness, conflict and brokenness, loss and sorrow. There's a reason that Christmas time, when it comes around, highlights things that we miss instead of things that we have. And there's certainly a warrant, isn't there, for the dark side of Christmas? Part of the Christmas story is that prophecy that Rachel weeps for her children, Jeremiah says, and we see that happening as the babies of Bethlehem are slaughtered by Herod's soldiers. In fact, the darkness was much more the backdrop to that first Christmas than the light was. The prophet says that people who walked in great darkness have seen a great light. So darkness comes before the dawn, and the dawn of Christ comes to a dark world. We have to keep this in view, otherwise Christmas won't make sense theologically to us. We won't be amazed at what exactly was happening when Jesus Christ came to redeem us. Redeem us from what? The condemnation and darkness of our sins. That is the dark backdrop against which Christmas shines so brightly. And this morning, the Advent theme before us is joy. It's joy. And as we consider joy, I'd like to do so by looking at how joy became such a central part of the story. I want us to consider how darkness and hopelessness and fear are eclipsed by the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I want to do that by joining some shepherds in a field. Shepherds that we saw in Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. And so what Chad just read is the source for that great Christmas hymn that we sang, God rest ye merry gentlemen. This is the declaration by the angel to the most unlikely hearers that the promise of God all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3.15, that the, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that that had now come. It had come to pass. It was going to be happening as surely as anything because God had said it. Nothing would be the same after that. The new day had dawned, 
The new age had come crashing like the greatest meteorite into the landscape of our world, changing everything about how we understand what God is doing. And the dominant theme of this passage before us is joy. If we're going to understand any passage of scripture rightly, we have to not only ask what words are being written there, what words are there in the text, but also what is the feel of the text. And the clues to the feel are in the words that God wrote. And we get the clear picture that in these words are tidings of comfort and joy. Christmas changes everything. And in this passage, we also see one of joy's mortal enemies. I would suggest that fear is one of the greatest threats to joy. Amy is a counselor. I counsel. And I think we would probably agree that when someone comes in racked with fear, joy is not a normal part of their daily life. Fear is a threat to joy. They don't dwell under the same roof. And Israel, God's people, had experienced fearful dominion at the hands of the world's empires for the 700 years leading up to this holy night. The relationship of the people of God to joy was not strong in the days before Christmas. But we see everything about that change in our text. And I think it's vital for us to consider these things because even now I'm concerned that fear so often plagues our hearts and steals our joy in Christ. And whatever the Christian life is, my friends, it is a life of joy. Especially when it comes to the familiarity of Christmas, we need to see with fresh eyes what these shepherds saw for the first time on that midnight clear. And so I would like to take our text in two parts this morning. As we walk through Luke 2, 8 through 20, we're going to see first how fear turns to joy in verses 8 through 14, and then how joy gives rise to action in verses 15 through 20. Christmas changes everything. And the first transformation we see on that first Christmas day is when fear turns to joy. And it all begins with a fearful appearance in verses 8 through 9. Now, we know from verses 1 through 7 that Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem, right? The ancestral hometown of King David, and they had to be there because Caesar had decreed it. The man who styled himself the Lord of the Roman Empire, the Lord of the world, had said, everybody needs to go and register at their ancestral hometown. And so for for, uh, Joseph and Mary, who both hailed from the line of David, that meant they had to get down to Bethlehem. A decree from a man thousands of miles away got a very pregnant woman and her husband-to-be, well, we won't get into all that, to go 80 to 90 miles down south to Bethlehem because Caesar said so. But we know the backstory, don't we? We know the backstory. Caesar may have decreed the census that got Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, but he only decreed it because God eternally decreed that he would decree that decree. And that's how the sovereignty of God works, my friends. We are coming up on a political year, and no matter what happens, I want you to remember that we know the Lord of glory, and his decrees have been set forever. So Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, which is why Caesar had to decree what he did. It's because the gospel needed to come to pass. The prophet had said in Micah that you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. 
Micah 5.2 demands that Christ be born in Bethlehem, and Luke 2.7 records its fulfillment. And Luke tells us in verse 8 that in that same area, the fields around Bethlehem, there were a group of shepherds keeping watch over a flock. Now, here's where we have to check our Christmas sentimentalism at the door, and I have as much as anybody. My wife has way more than me. It's festive in our house. And we have to check that sentimentalism at the door and ask what was going on here in the text, because that keeps us on track to understand what Christmas is all about. Now, these shepherds, they weren't the nicely washed figures that we put up in our nativity sets. You couldn't just simply make them clean by getting out the feather duster once a year. No, what were these shepherds doing? We need to know a few things. First, we need to know what kind of men they were. What kind of men were they? Well, they were social outcasts. Okay, they were social outcasts. They were socially unclean. These were very likely rough-and-tumble kind of men, the kind of men who you didn't want your kids playing outside on the street when they were coming around. Shepherds in Israel were at the bottom of the barrel of social status. Okay? Let me put it this way. Prostitutes, tax collectors, and shepherds were three careers you wouldn't see represented in Jewish kindergarten parent career days. <laughs> shepherds were dirty. They were notoriously dishonest. And they were so suspect that it was illegal for their testimony to be admissible in court. The Shane Maguires of Israel did not call them to the witness stand. (laughs) And if they did, their client would not pay them. Second, we need to know that they were ceremonially unclean. They were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So being a shepherd in Israel was a very dirty, very involved, very intense job. And even if these guys wanted to be devout, they probably couldn't be because they were kept away by Jewish purification laws. These guys worked with blood, feces, and bugs, three things you did not bring with you into the temple, okay? There was a good chance they violated the Sabbath while caring for the sheep. They couldn't worship Yahweh as other people could, and they were outcasts for it. Everybody needed the job they did to get done, but then they didn't want them around. And third, we need to know what these men were doing. And you're just like, they're shepherds. We know what they're doing. And it's like, yeah. But get this, they're six miles away from Jerusalem. These guys were probably, almost certainly, raising and guarding flock of sheep meant to be sacrificed at the temple. Okay? This was prime area for raising lambs for the sacrifices that took place in Jerusalem. And now nothing in our text tells us when they were there, except that it was the middle of the night, out in the fields. It simply tells us that they were there. Their night watches in the fields may suggest that it was between autumn and spring rains, because, friends, I drove in here on Friday night, and it was a torrent. I could barely see the road. And if it was raining like that, I wouldn't want to be watching any sheep in a field and neither would the shepherds. And so it may suggest that they were between the autumn and spring rains, so it may well have been sometime in December. And it may not have, we just, we don't know. We're simply not told the timing. So, for those of you who are concerned about these things, it's perfectly jolly to celebrate Christmas in December. It may not have happened then, it might have, so ho, ho, ho. (laughs) (laughs) But friends, this big picture, what's going on there is one of these divine ironies. 
It's one of the divine ironies that make the gospel so beautiful, the Bible so fun to study, because no matter how far you get for whole life down the road, you're always going to uncover new things that are there, because what God is doing in his word is so perfect, so amazing, so multi-layered, that his glory continues to shine through the deeper you get. And here's the irony. The men who were given the first Christmas greetings were the most unlikely suspects. Okay. They did not have card bags at, in the temple foyer to pick up. Okay. They were the dregs of society, unfit to enter God's temple, and yet they were raising God's lambs. And these were the men who were chosen by God to receive the first declaration of the gospel of salvation. These who were the men who desperately needed to know that God has come to save sinners because they knew, if anybody knew, that they weren't going to save themselves. They needed a word from outside and that word came that night to their shock and dismay and fear. And it was a good word. And I think there may be one or two people here, if I were to guess, who are keeping a distance of God, from God because you feel that you too are unclean. I've never heard that song we just sang, O Come All Ye Unfaithful. But boy, that's a message we need. If you're one of those who are tempted to believe that God is displeased with you and so you must stay away, no matter how hard you try, you're not good enough. Friends, take your cue from who God sent that angel to that night. He wants you with him. That's what we see in the shepherds. And this is where the fearful appearance comes in. So suddenly, as, you know, we, we need to kind of visualize this. Suddenly, as these shepherds are doing their thing in a dark Bethlehem field, an angel shows up among them. Now, what image does that conjure up? Right? We know what happens when angels show up in the Bible. People freak out. They fall down. They, sometimes they try to worship. But nobody's heart rate stays at resting, okay? Fitbits go off. They say, hey, you're in peak zone. And this is what's going on here. The brightness of God's glory lights up the sky as the angel appears, as if the appearance of the angel weren't enough. Darkness turns to day, in a sense. And I wonder if this wasn't the same glory that would draw the magi. We're not told, but I wonder if this isn't the glory that signaled, hey, Something big is happening. And these, these pagan philosophers from the East pick up and they just come. And they don't get there for a while. But friends, the glory of God does great things. And so imagine these guys who are strangers to God's temple being surrounded by God's glory and seeing God's messenger. Guys who are at home in the dark. Because some of us are still afraid of the dark. I'm not saying that I am. I'm saying some of us. And, and these guys, they're the ones who, if a rumble broke out, you'd probably want them on your side. And these guys are terrified. A, a, a literal translation of verse 9 would say that they feared a great fear. They feared a great fear. This is how the first Christmas greeting begins. Now, which brings us to verses 10 through 11, which is tidings of great joy. So we have to give the shepherds credit here. They're doing exactly what you and I were doing would do if we were in their place. If an angel just shows up, they respond pretty much the way that we would expect them to because angels are frightfully powerful creatures. And though I doubt that any of us have seen the manifestation of the fullness of an angel, 
we know enough about them to go, it's super good that they're on our side, that we're on their side, and we're all on God's side. It's super amazing that, as Hebrews tells us, they are messengers of God sent out for the sake of those that he has saved. This is a good thing. But the shepherds didn't know what we know. They hadn't read Hebrews, right? They're just freaked out. And the angel says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And why? Why shouldn't they be afraid? The angel tells them, He came bringing good tidings of great joy. And we need to pause here for a moment and notice something that doesn't come through in English, and yet it's very significant. I don't know if the angel spoke in Greek or Aramaic to those shepherds that night. It was likely Aramaic. But the Greek record in Luke, the angel says, euangelizomai, which means, I bring good news. Now, it literally means, it literally means, I evangelize. It comes from the word euangelion, which means gospel. In the most literal sense, what the angel is doing is he is proclaiming the gospel that night. He is evangelizing to these shepherds. The gospel is good news, he says, that drives away fear. And friends, I would suggest to you that it doesn't just drive away the shepherd's fear. It drives away your fear, and it drives away mine. It is good news for us as much as it is for them. Perfect love, John says, casts out fear. And so what is the gospel that drives away fear? Well, let's break it down because each part is important, which is one of the reasons we believe in the verbal inspiration of scripture. Each part is important. So verses 10 through 11, I'll read for you. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We see that the gospel is a cause of great joy. And friends, when we grasp the truth of what Christ had come to do and be for us, it becomes the solid foundation of a life that's built on joy. Because it's built on Christ. A joy that is so much deeper than the waxing and waning of our emotions and experiences. A joy that is unshakable because Christ upon whom it is built is the solid rock which cannot be shaken. A salvation he gives to us which cannot be taken away. The torrent of God's judgment is way bigger than any natural disaster that the world has ever known and is a judgment that has been satisfied in Jesus. Joy to the world. That's the gospel that is being declared, tidings of comfort and joy. And we see, as if that weren't good enough, that this gospel is to all people. It's to all people. And if your translation says that the joy will be to all the people, you might want to take a look there in verse 10. At the end of verse 10, some of you probably has a translation that says to all the people. Well, that's accurate. There is the article there which in Luke is a specific way of referring to the people of Israel, of Israel, to which all the Gentiles like me said, and what about us? (laughs) I have good news for you. It's the gospel for Gentiles too. It's the gospel for Gentiles too. Now remember, Christ came as the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people, but the Gentiles were always in view. The Gentiles were always in view. 
This syncs up so well with the class, in Shane's class this morning, where this is like literally what we looked at in Acts and in Amos. Now, what does Paul say in Romans 1? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jewish Messiah saving a church of Jews and Gentiles, one people of God. And on this first Christmas, it was a gospel declared first to the Jews. But Jesus says, I have come and I have other sheep to bring in. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, one church, the gospel to all people. And that leads us to notice another thing. The gospel is the, uh, that the angel announced is a gospel that is a global gospel. It is a global gospel. And in this first declaration of it on Christmas Day, we see the long-awaited fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham coming into view. Now, the Abrahamic covenant first comes to us in Genesis 12, and then it comes to us with more parts in the chapters that follow. But in that very first promise to Abraham, we're told that in Abraham's offspring, which Paul in Galatians tells us is Christ, that in Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the world would be blessed. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And we see also that the gospel is for the lowest of the low. The most disregarded of the disregarded. The people that society doesn't give a second thought to. That society casts out. Right? We don't live in a Hindu caste system. But if you look around in our society, there is a hierarchy that we see, don't we? Playing out. There's the cool kids. There's the people you don't really want to associate with. And in our country... I'm grateful that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, but friends, we disregard children as nothing. The gospel is for all people. And the angel says that Christ is born to you this day. And who is the you to whom he's talking? Shepherds. Yeah, those guys. I couldn't even tell you the last time I thought about shepherds. It's probably what others are thinking, right? We don't even give them a second thought. We just want their, we just want their lambs. So we can be good Christians at the temple, right? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians that not many Christians are of noble birth. Not many are of high status. Some are. But Christ came and chose the weak and despised of the world to shame the strong and esteemed. The gospel is for the world and the gospel nets all kinds of fish. Because Christ was born for all kinds of people. And he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable on which more in a minute. He was their Messiah, the the shepherd's Messiah, as surely as he is yours and mine. And kids, kids, I want you to hear this. He is your Messiah. When Jesus was born that night, he wasn't born as a college student. He wasn't born at an age of maturity. He was born as a baby. And you know what he did next? He, He became a toddler. And then he became a boy. And all along the way, he grew in wisdom and stature. So don't let anyone ever tell you that you need to be older to really understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Some of the most profound theology comes out of the smallest mouths. And so friends, children, I want you to know that Jesus is for you. That's what we see here. He sanctified, he made holy every age because he went through every age. 
And this is exactly the kind of thing we see Mary singing about in the Magnificat. One chapter earlier, verses 51 and 52, it says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He is the Savior of all of us, the oldest to the youngest. And at the heart of the good news is the fact, friends, that the gospel is Christ. The gospel is Christ. Jesus is the good news, the angel proclaimed. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If there was no Savior, there would be no declaration on that night. But there was a declaration on that night because there was a Savior. Christ is the gospel. And every word of the angel's announcement of good tidings is important. And every word about Christ in those good tidings is important. So let's take a look at what he says about Jesus. The angel says that Jesus is born. A savior was born. And if you're like, of course he was born. It's Christmas. There's a picture of a manger. We got it. It's just like, yeah, I know. But listen to this. The savior was born. The savior was born. And he is Christ the Lord. The gospel is the gospel of a savior. Now what does a savior do? He saves. Saves from what? Guilt. Condemnation. Judgment. Justice for your sins and mine. He came to save the shepherds. And boy, did they need saving. But guess what? So do we. And a savior was born. And we see in the angel's description of Christ exactly how he would save. He would save exactly the way the Old Testament prophets said he would. By the time Jesus was born, the hope of the Messiah was in full bloom. They had this great expectation of the one that the prophets had foretold. They had some of the details, many of the details, fuzzy But they knew he was coming. They knew it wasn't just just a general idea of a Messiah. They knew there was one who was coming to save. And most people, yes, expected a military conqueror to deliver Israel's overlords. But Isaiah prophesied of a suffering servant whose death in his people's place would be the path to victory. And on even just the manner of his birth, okay? Chad put it so beautifully in his prayer. We all of us were born better than Christ, more comfortably than Christ. Even in his birth, we see the suffering servant of the Lord. And as the Christ, as the Christ must be, he was born of David, which is the next thing we see from the angel. So we've seen the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant coming into view, but now we see the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, David is promised by God that one of his descendants would sit on his throne over God's people forever. And that is precisely what the angel was telling us that Jesus was born to do. In the city of David was born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, all of the hopes and expectations of the people of God as they read their Old Testaments are coming to a climax in Jesus who was born. There is nothing more fundamental to the promises of God than his covenants. And as we see his covenants unfold through the Old Testament, in the garden as he promises the Savior, as he promises to leave a world intact into which the Savior would come, as he promises not to flood the world again like that, 
as he promises that it would be through Abraham, and then he focuses it through Israel in giving them the Mosaic Covenant, and now David's son. Jesus is that son that the people needed, that the people wanted, that the people had come to expect. And when Gabriel announced to Mary in Luke 1 that Jesus would be born, he said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. So he's Christ, the Messiah from David's line, and he is Lord. Now, this is the massive shocker. Okay? Christ is Lord. That's pretty specific. Now, we're used to that, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's been the Christian confession since day one. But when Luke, Luke has used the title Lord 20 times already, at least, just coming up to our passage. And every time he refers to God, Israel's Yahweh. And so here, when he calls Jesus Christ the Lord, his record is like a neon billboard it's way, it's way more brilliant than that new sphere that U2 has been playing at down in Vegas. Okay? And if you've seen a picture of that thing, you're just like, how does anybody sleep in that city? And, and what, what does the billboard say here in Luke? It says, Jesus is God and he's just been born. And people are just like, mind bomb, what's going on? Well, that's why the title Christ and the title Lord, which we see side by side in this passage, are each of them so important. Because as Christ, he is the promised son of David, human. And in the title Lord, we see that he is the divine Yahweh, the son of God, son of God and son of man. And he has to be both son of God and son of man in one Christ. Otherwise, your salvation and mine doesn't exist. That's what the angel's declaring that first Christmas night. That's why these are such good tidings. This is the heart of biblical mystery. That eternal God became finite man, neither nature changing or altering the other. Fully God, fully man, one Christ. That's a head-scratcher for eternity. That's a head-scratcher for eternity. It's also a cause for worship, for worship. The wonder of Christmas is that the eternal Son of God who, this is the paradox, the eternal Son of God who holds all things together, like that didn't stop happening because of the incarnation. It just enhanced the wonder of God made man. The Son of God through whom and for whom all things were created, holding all things together, is held in his mother arms. The Son of God, fullness of God in frail babe, filling all things and yet held in a, a manger? These are tidings of comfort and joy. The end of fear in your life begins with the gospel. Christ, this Christ, has been born. Do not be afraid. Well, having thoroughly shocked the shepherds and comforted them with the gospel, the angel gives a sign in verse 12. And I would suggest that it's a prophetic sign. A prophetic sign. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. 
So how are the shepherds to know the truth of what they've been told? How can they fact check the angel? All right, no CNN fans here. Okay. (laughs) There's at least two layers to what's going on here. Okay, at least two layers going on in verse 12. Both of them meant to catch our attention and instill the wonder of Christ. First, it's normal for a baby to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. Back then, they were strips of linen wrapped tightly around a baby to give it a sense of comfort now that it's gone through the trauma of birth into this hostile, cold world. Okay, it's like a Snuggie. I don't think that I don't think the swaddling cloths were the sign. Okay, I think the swaddled babe lying in a manger, that was the sign, because that's the thing that nobody did. Okay, that's the thing that nobody did. Okay, a manger is a feeding and drinking trough for animals, and archaeological evidence from that area at that time shows that mangers were were most often hewn out of stone. They were most often hewn out of stone. Not the kind of crib that you wanted for your baby, but it's what was there by God's design. And when the shepherds saw a baby swaddled in a feeding trough made of stone, that would be the sign. That's how they would knew this is the one. This is the one, because he's the only guy in Bethlehem in a feeding trough made of stone. Okay. Now, second... Let me make a connection for you that blew my mind the first time I heard it. But it's there. It's in the text. So, think of Jesus. Okay, Fix this in your mind. Think of Jesus. The Son of God become baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a stone manger in what was probably a cave, which is where animals were stabled in Bethlehem. We have a son of God wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a stone manger, probably in a cave. Now, with that in mind, fast forward 33 years and listen to what Luke says. Luke 23, beginning in verse 52. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock where no one had ever lain before. You have the Son of God wrapped in linen, laid where no baby had been laid before, in a cave. Friends, Christmas is shadowing Good Friday. Christmas is foreshadowing Good Friday. This is why that baby came. This is why he came. That is it. The baby was wrapped in linen cloths and laid in a stone trough in a cave because he would die for his people's sins, be wrapped in linen, laid on a stone slab in a cave, and then rise from the dead. And Christmas is good news. Amen. Amen. The first Christmas night foreshadows Good Friday. And we see in Jesus' birth a picture of that reason he came, which was to die for you and for me and for our friends, the shepherds. This was a prophetic sign. Don't you love scripture and the God who ordained it all? And it led, of course it led, to the highest praise, which is in verse 13 and 14. The angel, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, Good thing the shepherds were not afraid anymore. <laughs> can you imagine the heart attack? Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is where the armies of heaven illuminate the night sky. This is the first string of Christmas lights. And they tell the world what Christmas is all about. 
Now, all through the Bible, heavenly host is a pretty technical term. It's, it means the armies of heaven. Normally, when an army comes into town, what are they they're declaring? War. The army of heaven comes to town declaring peace. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And yes, and the women. <laughs> I have to say that, otherwise someone's going to get upset. Now, we need to make a, a brief mention of the difference that comes into some of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay? And I won't take too long on this. Now, I'm using the New King James Version, which, like the King James, reads in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Chad was reading, uh, reading, I think, from the English Standard Version. Some of you probably are using the New American Standard. Others, something else. And those versions probably say something like, on earth peace, among men with whom he is pleased, or among men of goodwill. Okay, now there's a whole, a whole big debate about which rendering is the most accurate, and actually it, it comes down to one Greek letter tagged on to the end of the sentence. And it boils down to a small handful of manuscripts that are a little bit older than the rest that we still have in our possession. And those ones, those handful of older ones, have the peace among men with whom he is pleased, or peace among men of goodwill. But the vast majority of Greek copies that were providentially preserved by God through the centuries and used by the church read goodwill toward men. And I believe that's probably what the angel declared. And here's why I think that's significant. It's a wide-angle lens versus a narrow lens. Now, I'll be the first to agree that it is absolutely true that peace with God, okay, true peace with God only comes to those who are elect from before the foundation of the world. Scripture absolutely declares that. But God's peace and goodwill are shown to the farthest reaches of the earth. And this global extent of the gospel, I believe, is in view here when the angels are proclaiming the gospel for the very first time. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Which men? Yep. And on the backside of that door, we know the sign that Spurgeon referred to, elect before the foundation of the world. But what we see here is the angels are saying, good news to all. Go, tell it. Go tell it on a mountain. All right? And you're like, yes, good. We've got a song for that. Now, God brought his peace to the whole world in Jesus, and so those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will know peace. And right now, I was just in the lobby of my hotel today, uh, maybe it was yesterday, eating breakfast, and of course, all this business in the Middle East is flashing, and you're just like, where's the peace there? And and, and, you're right. If we're just looking today, there is a whole lot of people lacking peace. But make no mistake that one day, as surely as Jesus came, and because he came, there will come a day when some from every tribe, tongue, people, and language are gathered around the, uh, around the throne, and there is indeed peace on earth. Because Jesus is coming back again. And when he comes again, it's peace to all. It's peace to all. God's grace runs all the way down. And I imagine if these shepherds heard that God's goodwill was toward those with whom he is pleased, they would have gone, oh, bummer. How could God be pleased with us? And if I'm honest, how could he be pleased with me? I don't know you all that much, but how could he be pleased with you? I say that with love. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Friends, the answer is grace. Grace. 
Now, I know somebody, probably Daniel, is looking at the clock right now. Don't worry, we're only going to take a brief moment on the last six verses, verses 15 through 20. 15, 16, 17, 18, yep, six. Bible college, not math college. All right. Now, this is where we see joy in action. Okay, joy in action. Now, when you're full of joy to overflowing, you can't sit still, right? You can't sit still. Why? Because joy is an active emotion. It flows over. It is abundant. Now, friends, for those of us who hold that Reformed theology is the most faithful theology in the church, there's this kind of idea that's more subtly caught than taught that emotion is a bad thing. If you have too much of that, you might end up, you know, with the charismatic folks. But listen to this. I don't think that's true. The way I'm seeing it, and if I'm understanding the angel correctly, the better theology you have, the deeper your emotion should be. The more we know the doctrines of grace, the more we understand the incarnation, the happier people we should be. I think those in the Reformed churches should be the most joyous, the most robust, the most infectious people in the church. Amen. Right? Because this is good news. This is good news. And we see joy spilling over into action in three specific ways in these last six verses. Beginning in verses 15 and 16, we see joyful obedience from the shepherds. Now, there's, there's no way that when the angels go back to heaven that the shepherds are just standing around going, let's call a committee and see if what we've just heard is true. Let's go investigate. They're just like, we're gone. Right? Sheep, love you. Boom. They ran. They go. There's no hesitation. They go to Bethlehem and they find the babe in the manger because the mandate was clear and the obedience was immediate and it was joyful. Anybody who gives you this idea that obedient Christianity, which is to simply say the only kind the Bible knows, right? Obedient Christianity is somehow a burden. Friends, I think it was the founder of our faith who said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My burden is light. There's nothing more freeing than a joyful obedience because Jesus is a good master. He is a good Lord. Now, notice two things that are helpful for us. First, the message was God's. Now, they heard it from an angel, but who do they give the credit to? Right? The shepherds said, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So the angel said it, but they were God's messengers. Friends, whenever God says anything through anybody, whether it be apostle, prophet, or angel, it is true. It is his word, which means for us, now 2,000 years out from this event, we have trustworthy Bibles in our laps. We don't have to wonder whether every word of what we read here is accurate. The question is simply, how does it all fit together? We know it's true. I see a sanctuary full of people who have built their lives on that. And you have not built in vain. And you are not building in vain. Second, we see that the message was true. And this is the corollary to the fact that God spoke it. When the shepherds went to Bethlehem, they didn't half expect to find an empty manger. Now, they likely had never seen a baby in one before. But they went to, a, to Bethlehem expecting to find Jesus in a manger. And that's exactly what they found. Now, this is so important for us because, friends, the events of the Bible happened exactly as the Bible records them to have happened. 
And if that didn't, if that wasn't the case, then our faith is futile. Paul makes the whole case about our, our faith's sureness on the, the fact that the resurrection is history. History is the stage on which theology plays out. So every single doctrine you hold dear takes place in a very real world. And when very real shepherds, dirty as they were, went on that Christmas night, they had a real reason to celebrate because a real angel had told them about a real Christ who they found in a real manger. We don't need revisionist history in the church. We need faithful, Bible-believing history. That is the foundation. And when we resolved... When we resolve that the Bible is true, then friends, let us also resolve to do what the shepherds did, which is to joyfully obey all of it. To joyfully obey all of it. The second truth about Christian joy in action that we see in verses 17 through 18 is joyful witness. It's joyful witness. What did these shepherds do when they had seen him? They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, these shepherds, right, we already know they are socially unclean. Shepherds probably were a little tentative to just go into polite society and start declaring crazy things. But that's exactly what they did. I don't know about you, but I don't get the sense that these shepherds were hemming and hawing over, I don't know, do do you guys have some good clothes back at the, I don't, where do we even keep our clothes? The shepherds became the joyful first New Testament evangelists, sharing everywhere to anyone who would listen what they had heard and seen about Jesus, because Christ's incarnation for our salvation created joyful witness in these men. They couldn't help it. The Savior had been born. I wonder, friends, if one of the greatest dangers about the depth of our faith, the further with Christ we get, is that the wonder of just what we're excited about stops pouring out from us because we might be a little too socially self-conscious of what people will think. Does the gospel that we're reading here create joyful witness in your life? Do you look for opportunities to share what you've heard and seen about your Savior? May it be so with us as it was with the shepherds. And then finally, we see Christian joy in action in joyful worship. In joyful worship. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. We most often think of worship as singing, don't we? And and that's certainly true. Worship definitely includes singing. But the first act of worship we see is Mary who keeps these things and ponders them in her heart. Now, the language of pondering and the tense of the verb, they're ongoing. She didn't just think about them for a moment. She kept thinking on and trying to piece together, what is this that we've been told? What is this that has happened? My baby was born. I've never been with a man. And the shepherd showed up. What does this mean? And she kept pondering those things all through Jesus' life. Friends, this is worship. If I may make the connection, when we carefully return time and again to the events and the message of the Bible, seeking to piece it together, seeking to understand how all of these very true things we're reading fit together, the grand story, the theological details, the message of the Gospels and the Epistles and the Prophets, when we're scratching our heads together in Sunday school, that's worship. That is worship. 
And of course, we see the shepherds responding to God for his revelation the way that we should, day in and day out, by glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and that they had seen. So in these two verses, we see the rhythm of worship, listening to God in his word, responding to God in joyful praise, and this brings him glory, and it flows out of the gospel that we have seen, declared by the angel on the first Christmas. And as it was with the shepherds and with Mary, so may it be with us. Because here's the big idea. Christ's incarnation for our salvation, which is a historical fact. Christ's incarnation for our salvation banishes fear. And in its place, it creates joyful worship, joyful witness, and joyful obedience. We We have good tidings of great joy. And I hope and pray that this will be a most joyous Christmas for you, Sylvania Church, even in the midst of such a year of sorrow, because Christ has come, and he has come for you. He's come for me. And he's faithful to the end, even as he was faithful in his first advent. Please pray with me. Oh God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We know from your word that these events that we have studied today are true. They happened. And they happened because before anything happened, before creation happened, you are the eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in love, you ordained to create the world and send a Savior, the Son of God, eternal, into our very frail race, your sinless lamb, to take the sins of the world, that your people whom you have called out of this world, us, even us, may believe and have life in his name. Lord, these these are eternal truths, eternal decrees come to pass in time in the most unlikely way. And we wonder and we marvel at who you are for us in Christ. It is hard to find the words, Father. Father, But these great truths, Lord, may they be to us tidings of comfort and joy. Please have mercy on us for every joyless day we have spent in our Christian lives. Forgive us for the apathy that so easily sets in because these things are so familiar. May they certainly, Father, be familiar. May they be made deeper to us and may our joy be full and overflowing. May our mouths bear witness that Jesus Christ has come May we be your faithful evangelists in Tyler and in through the whole world because your angel came and declared this message. Christ came and lived this message. And just as the shepherds were your evangelists, so may we be. And may we leave here today not only joyfully praising and glorifying you, but pondering and continuing to ponder these things in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, we ask for your grace and illuminating work to understand them. And it is in your glorious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.